Hi and welcome. Uh, my name is Dean Reuter. I'm an employee of the Federalist Society. I thank you all for coming this evening. I heard traffic in the neighborhood is pretty uh, horrendous, so hopefully some folks will join us uh, uh, and trickle in over the next few minutes. Uh, but I wanted to thank you for being here tonight, and I'll also extend my gratitude to the Bar Association of the City of New York uh, for collaborating with us, uh, helping to organize this, and indeed hosting it in this uh, great hall. Um, this is the work, this represents the work of four committees of the Bar Association, the International Law Committee, the International Human Rights Committee, the UN Committee, and the Committee on Capital Punishment. Uh, some of you might remember that we were in this same room about a year ago uh, with some of those and other committees of the New York City Bar Association with our first collaboration. This is our second, and uh, we're very, we the Federal Society are very happy to be here. This pretty much is what we do, uh, sponsor balanced panel debates on uh, topics, timely uh, issues of the day. So if you're a member of the New York City Bar Association and uh, in the leadership, uh, I encourage you to get in touch with us uh, because we look forward to our next collaboration. We have thousands of members in the Federalist Society all over the country and they cover all aspects of law, so not just international law topics. I want to thank our panelists in advance, uh, particularly our moderator, uh, Judge Jose Cabrenas. And he was appointed to the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit in 1994 uh, after having served as a district judge for the District of Connecticut for 15 years. He was born in Puerto Rico and at the age of five moved to the South, South Bronx. And he has the distinction of being the first Puerto Rican appointed to the federal bench in the continental United States. Judge Cabrenas holds degrees from Columbia College, Yale Law School, and the University of Cambridge. So by, by my resume, he's a little overeducated. Um, he served as general counsel to Yale University. He's widely published and has been in private practice and has been a professor of law uh, teaching at Rutgers. I'm very pleased to have him here to moderate our panel this evening. So Judge Cabrinas, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm honored and delighted to moderate this panel of distinguished scholars on a subject of great importance to our country, namely the interrelationship between customary international law and our constitutional structure, particularly in, an era, in the era of a war on terror. Before we're treated to what I think will be a, a fascinating exchange among these leading experts, I'll set the stage with a brief back, with brief background remarks on customary international law and its place in our legal system, and then I'll introduce the panelists. It should go without saying, but I will say it anyway, that we're engaged in an academic discussion at the seat of a great bar association, and nothing I may say here intimates the slightest view on any case or subject before my court, past, present, or future. The modern roots of customary international law lie in the natural law philosophy of 16th and 17th century Europe. In particular, the Dutch jurist Hugo Grotius is credited with having emphasized the idea of jus gentium, that is a body of law that applies to all peoples as a result of universal values and norms. Grotius was among the first to expound the concept of territorial sovereignty, the principle of the legal equality of states, and the idea of the sea as international territory. These principles were later recognized in the Peace of Westphalia, the treaty that ended the Thirty Years' War in 1648, 
that marked the beginning of the modern era in European history. In the 18th and 19th centuries, the concept of international law became heavily influenced by a different school of thought, the positive school, which emphasized the importance of treaties and international custom as the main sources of international obligations. The positivists distinguished themselves from their predecessors by looking to the actual practice of states rather than to natural law as a source of international law. By analyzing the obligations that states had actually undertaken and how widely these obligations were recognized and respected, the positivists were able to identify a set of rules that could be called international law, a term, in fact, which is uh, generally thought to have been invented or coined by Jeremy Bentham. The, war and permanent, the early and permanent imprint of the positivist approach to international law can be clearly seen in the constitutional history of the United States. The framers of the Constitution expressly recognized two different kinds of international law. First, the kind of international law that is made by agreements or treaties among nations. And second, the kind of international law that arises from custom. This second brand of international law has since come to be known as customary international law. The framers provided that treaties would be part of the supreme law of the land, but specified that in order to enjoy that venerated status, treaties must be ratified by the president with the advice and consent of the Senate. The authority to bind the United States to a treaty was vested in part in the executive branch and in part in the legislative branch, precisely because treaties were akin to contracts contracts between sovereign nations, and therefore they were not perfectly analogous either to the formulation of law, the main function of the legislative branch, or to the execution of law, the main function of the executive. As usual, Alexander Hamilton explained it all in the Federalist Papers. He wrote in number 75, and I quote, the power of making treaties relates neither to the execution of the subsisting laws nor to the enactment of new ones. Its objects are contracts with foreign nations which have the force of law, but derive it from the obligations of good faith. They are not rules prescribed by the sovereign to the subject, but agreements between sovereign and sovereign. The power in question seems, therefore, to form a distinct department and to belong properly neither to the legislative nor to the executive. But if treaty law consists of agreements to which nation states expressly agree to be bound, customary international law is different. Roughly formulated, customary international law consists of rules of law which result not from an obligation assumed by a state pursuant to a treaty or other explicit agreement, but rather from custom, that is, rules based on the general and consistent practice of states. And of course, this is where things get a bit tricky, because customary international law, by definition, is generally not codified or formulated in any instrument that nation states ratify in order to signify their formal consent. Instead, as our courts have held, customary international law consists of those clear and unambiguous rules by which states universally abide or to which they accede out of a sense of ob legal obligation and mutual concern. Customary international law, like the law of treaties, 
and indeed like virtually everything that we in the West would call law, is generally based on consent of the governed. In the case of customary international law, consent of the governed means the consent of the nation states that are said to be bound by international law. However, there is an exception in the realm of international law to the requirement of consent to be bound. This exception is what the Europeans like to call peremptory norms or Jus Cogens norms. That's J-U-S-C-O-G-E-N-S. Peremptory norms are those universal principles that are thought to be so fundamental, for example, norms prohibiting genocide or slavery, that all nation states are said to be bound to adhere to them without evidence of their formal consent. The concept of peremptory norm has been a wellspring for the, assertion, for the assertion of different policy goals. The result has been a proliferation of claimed peremptory norms, some of which have been the basis of claims in domestic lawsuits. It can be challenging to identify the sources of customary international law and to apply its principles. The challenge of identifying and applying customary international law is particularly striking in the era of a global war on terror, which presents a new asymmetrical conflict between nation states and organizations that are not nation states. In the context of a war on terror, some invoke customary international law generally, or invoke so-called peremptory or use Kogan's norms in particular to oppose certain policies and actions of the United States. It bears recalling that as a general rule, customary international law is created by the general customs and practices of nations in their relations with each other. And it does not stem from any single definitive readily identifiable source. Because inter customary international law is to be found in myriad decisions made in numerous and various international and domestic arenas, and the relevant evidence is widely dispersed and generally unfamiliar to lawyers and judges, it is not surprising that one leading authority has referred to its, and I quote, soft, indeterminate character. Soft, indeterminate character. It is also not surprising that how and when customary international law is applied by the courts of the United States can be controversial. For example, in determining customary international law, we are often informed that a suitable source of that law is international opinion, drawn from the domestic law or trends of some preferred states. Of course, customary international law has little or nothing to do with the domestic law of individual states even where the principle of law is recognized by all states. Let me offer a simple example. Murder is a crime under the law of all nation states, but the prohibition of murder is not a rule of customary international law. That is so because as a general matter, customary international law deals with rules governing the conduct of states in their relations with other states. Another example, it has been suggested that some, by some commentators or that some commentators try to shape the law by asserting supposed rules of customary international law grounded in the pronouncements of international organizations, such as the United Nations General Assembly, 
rather than in the specific practices of states. Particularly in the dynamic context of a global war on terror, it is important that we get it right when identifying and applying principles of customary international law. Why? Why is it important to get it right? Because customary international law will be used in one way or another by the U.S. and by its foes. And because the misuse of international law will invariably lead to cynicism and will breed resistance to the very idea of international law, thereby giving credence to the observation of the late Isaiah Berlin of a widespread belief that international law simply does not exist. Our panelists tonight may usefully consider the effects of having customary international law become unmoored from the basic principle of consent by sovereign states. In other words, unmoored from the consent of the government. Our panelists might also consider, for example, the absence or loss of legitimacy that may result from the invocation of a body of law that is unconnected to democratic political processes. It seems to me that across the political spectrum, our people believe that the international legal obligations imposed on the United States should be those legal obligations that the United States has freely assumed. That is, those legal obligations to which the United States has freely and knowingly consented under its democratic and constitutional processes. If consent of the government is indeed relevant to customary international law, and maybe our panelists will not agree that it is, that's, that's the question, whether consent of the government is relevant to customary international law. But if it is, then our panelists may also wish to consider when, to what degree, and by what means customary international law is or should be incorporated into our domestic law. If our lawmaking processes are presumptively founded on the democratic idea of the consent of the governed, are there circumstances, we might ask, where customary international law may be introduced into our domestic law without the formal consent of our Congress? Having set forth some brief reflections on the background of customary international law, I turn to the introduction of our panel members in the order in which they will speak. Martin Flaherty is a professor of constitutional law and history, as well as of international human rights at Fordham University Law School, where he is co-director of the Joseph R. Crowley Program in International Human Rights. After graduating from the Columbia Law School, where he was a book review and articles editor of the Law Review, he clerked for Judge Gibbons on the Third Circuit, and then for Justice Byron White. He chairs the Committee on International Human Rights here at the Association of the Bar of the City of New York, and he has been a visiting fellow at the Woodrow Wilson School at Princeton, as well as a visiting professor at the China University of Political Science and the National Judges College, both in Beijing. He has written widely on foreign relations law, federalism, and separation of powers. John O. McGinnis, who will speak after him, is the 1940 research professor of law at the Northwestern University Law School, where he teaches constitutional law, international trade, antitrust, and law and economics. After graduating magna cum laude from Harvard College, 
He earned a master's degree in philosophy and theology at Balliol College, Oxford, where he was a Knox Fellow, and then returned to Harvard for law school, where he's an editor of the Harvard Law Review. And after law school, he clerked for then-judge Kenneth W. Starr of the D.C. Circuit and served as a deputy assistant attorney general in the Office of Legal Counsel. He has published numerous scholarly, scholarly articles in leading law reviews. A preeminent figure on international trade issues, he is a member of the National Advisory Committee for the North American Agreement on Labor Cooperation and has been de designated by the U.S. Trade Representative as a member of the roster of panelists for the resolution of World Trade Organization disputes. David Golov, who will speak third, is the Hiller Family Foundation Professor of Law at NYU, where his work focuses on constitutional law and international law. He received his undergraduate and law degrees from the University of California at Berkeley and an LLM degree from the Yale Law School. He has written articles on various subjects, including treaty making and American government. He directs the JDLLM program in international law at NYU Law School, and he's a member of the faculty executive committee of the NYU Institute of International Law and Justice. Finally, David Rifkin, Jr. is a partner in the Washington office of Baker and Hostetler, a visiting fellow at the Nixon Center, a contributing editor of National Review magazine, and a member of the United Nations Subcommission on the Promotion and Protection of Human Rights. He worked in the Reagan and George H.W. Bush administrations in various capacities, including stints at the White House Counsel's Office, the Office of the Vice President, and the Departments of Justice and Energy. Before beginning his legal career, he worked as a defense and foreign policy analyst focusing on Soviet affairs, arms control, naval strategy, and NATO-related matters. He holds a JD from the Columbia Law School, a master's degree in Soviet affairs from Georgetown University, from which he had graduated and taken a bachelor's degree from the School of Foreign Service. Mr. Rifkin has written widely on the international law of armed conflict and the treatment of unlawful combatants. His writings have appeared in many newspapers, magazines, law journals, and books. He has also frequently been featured as a commentator on television and radio programs. I think we are remarkably fortunate to have such a distinguished panel with us tonight, and we'll begin the discussion with 10-minute introductory remarks by each panelist. And I've been asked to be cruel and unusual in enforcing the 10-minute limit, which will be followed by moderated discussion and questions from the audience. We'll begin first with Professor Flaherty. Um, thank you, Judge Cabranes. It's an honor having you uh, chair this session. Um, and thanks, too, to the Federalist Society. This is the second time I've been asked to speak at a rather large uh, uh, gathering of the Federalist Society. And it put me in mind of the observation Voltaire had about orgies, which is once a philosopher, twice a pervert. Um, but uh, I say that by way of admiration because it is a guilty pleasure, actually, for me to attend the Federalist Society functions. I found, find them incredibly uh, high caliber and actually very uh, uh, balanced. And so uh, it's uh, likewise an honor to be part of this session tonight. Um, my remarks will uh, stem from uh, basically my background. I'm no longer, I started out as an 18th century historian, um, and while I'm not one uh, anymore, I still sort of play one in law reviews. 
Uh, on the other hand, I also do a lot of contemporary human rights advocacy uh, and constitutional law theorizing. So the second part of my remarks will bear on that, particularly with reference to the uh, notions about consent. And uh, from those two perspectives, I want to essentially argue the following thesis, which is that customary international law is neither un-American nor illegitimate from precisely uh, a, a democratic uh, point of view. So let me talk about the first uh, uh, assertion that um, customary international law is American, or at least you know Anglo-American and becomes American. First, I want to uh, say one thing by way of clarification, at least in my own mind, about the nature of customary international law in the 18th century. Uh, it's interesting that this is a body of law that emerges in its modern form along with the uh, American colonies. And it is certainly seen to reflect natural law. However, from the very beginning, it had a positivistic element because natural law was identified, was made ma manifest through the consistent behavior of nations. And so to that extent had a positivistic basis. And indeed, customary international law was always dynamic and often contested. Um, how could something that was identifying static natural law be dynamic? Well, because evolving behavior of nation states clarified what, in the 18th century mind, what was the proper interpretation of natural law. So there was always this dynamic element, and that was understood in the 18th century. And for all those reasons, it was seen as similar and indeed equivalent part of um, uh, related to the common law, which leads me to how uh, customary international law uh, was received and internalized uh, on this side of the Atlantic. Um, it was, uh, uh, first of all, in terms of the writers that American colonists and leaders of the revolution and the Constitution looked to, they looked to the great jurists of customary international law almost as much as they looked to Locke, Blackstone, uh, and others. Indeed, one of the most popular authors in the late 18th century was Emmerich de Vattel. Indeed, an interesting trivia uh, uh, point is the first two books that the United States Senate ordered were Blackstone and Vettel in 1796. Um, speaking of Blackstone, Blackstone uh, 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 articulated the English rule, which as far as I know is still the English rule, which is that um, customary international law, the law of nations, is part of English common law. It is something that English judges can um, enunciate and make a rule of decision. Um, and indeed, that, can, that was true in the colonies and continued to be true in the states um, after independence. Now, how does this shake out with regard to the federal constitution? Well, here I think there is an overwhelming case to be made that customary international law was understood to be not necessarily a directly operating body of law, though there are a few scholars who uh, articulate that view, but certainly a body of law that could be recognized by the courts as one aspect of federal common law. Um, and strong evidence, although here it's much more ambiguous, that it could also be binding on the states. Well, what is the evidence here? Um, for sake of time, I'm going to have to skip over uh, a lot of uh, uh, what I might say about the text of the Constitution, other than to say, if you need a textual hook for this proposition, um, it's Article 3, Section 2, the judicial power shall extend to cases uh, 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 arising under the laws of the United States and to diversity cases. In other words, the understanding of the judicial power was a common law power to articulate both common law rules and uh, rules derived from the law of nations. 
Now, there are interesting and very thorny um, questions that regard to the proper jurisdiction. Um, uh, clearly in diversity, and especially when you're going to have a foreigner uh, involving the law of nations, that's what will get you jurisdiction and thus the law of nations can become a rule of decision. It's a little more ambiguous with regard to the relationship jurisdictionally of the law of nations to arising under jurisdiction. There's some evidence that goes both ways. We could talk about that in the Q&A when there's more time. Um, and to anticipate a little what uh, uh, um, Professor Golub is going to say, and by the way, he has done much more work on this particular area than I have, um, you know, uh, one hook for the president having to follow customary international laws, the notion that the pres is the text that says the president shall take care that the laws be faithfully executed. Um, so there is a strong basis in the original understanding, which is also seen in early case law, such as uh, Henfield's case involving uh, criminal sanction for violations of uh, Washington's neutrality proclamation. Um, so to telegraph a lot of historical um, uh, information in the little time I have, essentially the conclusions are the balance of evidence strongly indicates this federal common law power with regard to customary international law, and that the burden is on those who would divest the courts of this power. Various attempts have been made. Uh, Erie uh, has transformed and taken away this power of the court. I don't think that works. Um, there's a notion that, well, gee, the United States was uh, uh, all for the law of nations when it was a small, weak republic, and now that it's no longer a small, weak republic, uh, this is no longer relevant. I don't think that works, and we could talk about uh, that. But the point I want to make is that uh, uh, customary international law, in the sense I've been talking about, was seen as very much American, seen as very much a constitutional power, and the burden goes to those who would strip the courts of that power. Now, in terms of democratic legitimacy, um, the second bunch of remarks, and this is a little shorter. There's this bogeyman, the customary international law um, conjures up the specter of unelected judges making up law not just out of whole cloth, but worse, out of foreign cloth, um, to counter the democratic desires of state legislatures you know, and others. Well, here I think it actually bears a reminding that customary international law is definitionally based on national consent, on notions of national consent, which is doubly democratic in a democratic state. And also, by definition, its rules of recognition are so difficult to meet that it constrains uh, um, the type of abuse that is usually attributed to it. Uh, consent, well, as you heard from Judge Cabranes, nations must, through their behavior or public position, adhere to a given principle over a significant period of time. Um, that's certainly democratic as between states. It's the consent of the states. It's, they know the baseline rule that if they follow certain behavior out of a sense of obligation, there will be a binding rule that emerges. That is a form of consent. It's passive consent, but it's consent. Moreover, all states through the United Nations Charter, Article 38 of the uh, Statute of the International Court of Justice, have through treaties accepted this baseline set of rules. In other words, the customary international law is a source of binding international law. And to the extent that nation states are themselves democracies, it's further democratic. Um, uh, in our democracy, the president, the political branches can opt out. The president can opt out through a persistent objection as a, 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 a customary international law norm is evolving. We can opt out of the uh, um, uh, uh, evolution of a uh, customary international law norm before it becomes binding. And last I checked, the president is ostensibly elected by the people of the United States. Moreover, Congress 
can overturn it by statute. Now, that would place us in violation of international law, but there is nothing in uh, anything customary international law uh, advocates argue that would prevent Congress from, by statute, overturning a customary international law rule. Uh, in terms of definitional protection, the notion of many, many states over time, it, you know, the, the, sometimes the standard is given as generality or as universality. In practice, it tends to be more generality, but still, it has to be something approaching, you know, over 150, over 175 of the 200 nations of the world signing on to some principle in the fashion I've talked about. And when it comes to international human rights, and here, so long as nations do this out of a sense of some sort of international obligation, it can uh, uh, affect how nation states treat their own people through human rights law. I mean, what are the few things that have jumped these hurdles in terms of customary international human rights law? Well, I refer you to Section 702 of the Restatement Third of the Foreign Relations Law of the United States, made by that wide-eyed, proactive human rights um, uh, zealot, Lewis Hankin. And here's the list. Genocide is prohibited, slavery of the slave trade, murder or causing disappearance of individuals, torture or other cruel and human or degrading treatment, prolonged arbitrary detention, systematic racial discrimination, or a consistent pattern of gross internationally recognized violations of human rights. That doesn't strike me as a radical list of, of what the world has agreed on in terms of core commitments with regard to international custom. So I end my remarks, I end my 10 minutes um, asking the question, you know, who's afraid of customary international law? Who should be afraid of customary international law? Well, it wasn't the founding generation, and it certainly shouldn't be ourselves. Well, uh, our domestic world does seem to be becoming full of international law. Uh, justices are proposing to use customary international law in some variety of novel ways, including, uh, including using it to construe our own constitution. Other advocates want to treat customary international law as federal law that constrains our democratic officials and even displaces contrary federal legislation. In my view, the stakes are higher today than the founders could have known whose modern international law potentially encompasses the relations of nations to their own citizens on issues from the death penalty to hate speech to even abortion. The subject matter is not limited to the law of nations known by the framers, which generally concern the relations of one nation to another. What makes the domestic application of such international norms controversial is that the Congress and the President haven't affirmatively chosen to give them domestic effect. I'll call this kind of customary international law of raw international law to distinguish it from international law the political branches have expressly made part of its effect. In my remarks, I'm going to focus on what I consider the key pragmatic question, which is, uh, should we, in the cases when customary international law conflicts with something the political branches have done, should we, should we uh, displace the decisions of the political branches? And there, I think the key pragmatic question is whether such international norms likely to be better than those produced by our political processes. The rule of international law is certainly not to be preferred if it is to stabilize a better American rule of law. How are we to evaluate the quality of international law? Again, this is a problem that many in the founding didn't really consider because they viewed the relatively few rules of law of nations as a species of natural law, which by its very definition is a kind of trump.
But in our era of positive law, we no longer believe in such brooding omnipresences, to use the colorful phrase of Oliver Wendell Holmes. Instead, we must evaluate whether the process for creating international law is as good as the decision-making of our democratically elected officials. And that's the question. One glaring problem with the internet, customary international law is that it's a democratic deficit built into its very definition. Here is the classic standard that a principle must meet to be customary international law. The principle must represent a widespread practice of nations that they follow as a matter of legal obligation. Note this definition doesn't mention, only mentions nation states and not the individual consent of the people or their welfare. But in more, this problem is more than theoretical. I think uh, internet, customary international law has five, six maybe different kinds of democratic defects. The first defect is that nations really don't have to assent uh, to a principle of customary international law in order for one to be created. Instead, nations can often be considered to have consented to a principle simply if they failed to object, have not been a persistent objector. Obviously, this measure of consent compares unfavorably to domestic democracy. Domestic political actors can't create norms by failing to object, but must affirmatively embrace a practice, and that ensures some accountability. The second defect is the influence on international law wielded by non-democratic, even totalitarian nations. Uh, in many of the multilateral human rights treaties, which have been unratified by the United States, they're often claimed as the basis of customary international law. And yet totalitarian nations like the Soviet bloc and communist China were part of the give and take in negotiations on those treaties. We can hardly be confident that the same provisions would have emerged absent the influence of those evil empires. To be sure, some of these provisions may be very good, but the process that generated them cannot provide us any confidence that they are. A third defect is that agreements are cheap talk if nations don't actually enforce them. But many nations flout agreements, and most others themselves don't give them domestic effect. In contrast, when Congress passes uh, domestic norms, it expects them to be enforced, and that expectation is some evidence of that they, people think they're sincerely good. At least provisions in negotiated agreements are written down, but much of customary international law doesn't rest on any canonical text. Someone must assess how widespread a practice is and whether it's followed out of a sense of legal obligation. Who are responsible for those determinations? The most important group are publicists, and who you may ask are they? Well, they're international law professors. You're looking at some of them on the panel here. Now, as you may remember from your law school days, uh, law professors have a lot of virtues, but representativeness of their fellow citizens on any dimension is not among them. And indeed, we have a recent study of international law professors in the United States that show that they are uh, six to one, a Democratic to Republican. In my view, if such an ideologically skewed group of people is going to shape international norms, we're going to get ideologically skewed norms. This social science shows, not surprisingly, the average Americans understand less well what goes on in Geneva uh, than in Washington. And that means that elites and interest groups are going to have greater power to shape customary international law. And sixth, there's a kind of dead hand problem of customary international law, the question which is very relevant in the age of terror. It may well be that the United States has consented to some principle uh, 30 years ago before weapons of mass destruction. But we may, if our domestic branches, may now think we need a different rule in light of new realities. Thus, international law has multiple democratic defects, and domestic democracy is far from perfect, but elections, deliberation, and the scrutiny of public officials seem to me to provide better assurance when, uh, when these laws conflict with customary international law that we should follow our own laws. The difficulty of connecting international law to a process for generating beneficial norms militates 
against giving it domestic effects. Certainly, given the customary international law norms lack process guarantees of ordinary democracy, they shouldn't be used to construe the Constitution to overturn the results of ordinary democracy. And they shouldn't be used of their own force, in my view, to impose domestic restraints on United States officials. Um, that seems to me we don't generally circumscribe the actions of federal actors under lawful delegations or display state law unless a norm goes through a powerful democratic process that provides a far stronger guarantee of quality than that possessed by customary international law. This point seems to me consistent with Article 6 of the Constitution, federal statutes and treaties are binding law, but customary international law is notably missing from the list. Some have argued that following international law may improve American welfare, but only international law can provide a solution to the tragedy of the commons, where spillovers from one nation state affect another. For instance, it may be best for all nations to follow an international rule to avoid overfishing a pool of common water, because they'll get all more fish in the end. But this seems to me an argument for international agreements, not customary international law. The political branches can decide to enter into treaties that can bind us. Indeed, it seems to me the ability to enter into treaties, which is quite easy in the modern world, raises questions about whether customary international law is not largely an anachronism. In the time of Grotius, high transaction costs made it difficult to reach international agreements, and customary international law may have made sense when we couldn't be sure of what we've agreed to. But now, if the United States or other nations want to agree to international norms, it can send the negotiators by plane to The Hague or some other delightful diplomatic garden spot. Even without a treaty, Congress can affirmatively choose to prohibit Americans, including the President, from violating customary international law. Finally, some of our we should follow in raw international law to take into account the interests of foreign nationals. I myself think the touchstone of the American regime should be the interest of Americans. But let me suggest, finally, that American law may actually be better than international law for the interests of the citizens around the world. First, not all the activities purportedly covered by modern international law create spillovers from one nation to another. For instance, most of our decisions about human rights only affect the people who have subjected themselves to our own jurisdiction. Yet our power to determine our own law in this regard has benefits to foreigners. First, uh, some people from around the world, and millions of them do every decade, can come to our own nation and choose our particular bundle of rights and responsibilities. And moreover, all democratic nations can evaluate how our norms are working and adopt as many as are good for them. Uh, it, by conforming our laws to an international standard, international law, it seems to me, may preclude similar gifts that American exceptionalism has been giving to the world since our Declaration of Independence. But even in activities where there are spillovers, such as the law and the use of force, America's law is probably better than international law when the two conflict. The United States is the world's great power, called often in, in international relations theory, uh, somewhat amusingly, the global hegemon. It stands to gain a lion's share of the resources from the peace and prosperity of the world. Its political process has incentives to provide, in my view, these great, uh, great uh, global public goods, like the use of the appropriate use of the war uh, of force, that preserve, that help peace and prosperity around the world. Moreover, as a hegemon composed of immigrants who remain concerned about the welfare of the nations they left behind, citizens from all over the world will have some virtual representation in our political processes. Of course, I admit that these guarantees 
of uh, beneficence for foreigners are to, be, are, to be sure, very imperfect. But given the problems of customary international law, our law seems better for foreigners than that. Thus, by insisting that our courts not follow international law when it conflicts with our own law, uh, we're not only doing a favor for ourselves, we're helping people around the globe. It seems to me that America most helps people around the world we remain true to our own democratic genius. Thank you very much. Thank you, Judge, for the kind introduction, and thank you all for having me here today. Um, I'm going to be speaking about um, the relationship between uh, the President's powers as Commander-in-Chief and the laws of war. Indeed, in particular, the customary laws of war. Um, indeed, I'm going to actually uh, have a uh, pitch at it a somewhat broader way and talk about the relationship between the commander-in-chief power and, the, and law, uh, most particularly the customary laws of war, but also uh, congressional law. Now, in considering the scope of the president's powers as commander-in-chief, I think it's useful to begin by considering the Bush administration's conception of the relationship between law and war with the conception found in the American constitutional tradition. And the administration seems openly to embrace the maxim, inter armies sealant legis, and it seeks to implement that maxim as the constitutional law of the United States. It claims, for example, that international law, at least in the context of the war on terrorism, is almost wholly permissive. The Geneva Conventions do not apply, and even the customary laws of war are, in its view, silent. In any case, according to the administration, the Geneva Conventions are not self-executing, and as a result, are not only not enforceable by U.S. courts, but are simply not part of U.S. law at all. Even if they were, the president would have no authority, uh, would have authority as a matter of domestic law, simply to disregard them, just as he may freely put aside any principles of customary international law that he finds inconvenient. But it's not only international law that can't constrain the president. In the administration's view, Congress is likewise without any such power. A statute which purports to limit the discretion of the president in conducting war is simply unconstitutional because the president's powers in this area are exclusive. Now, completing the circle, the administration's, in the administration's view, the Constitution itself imposes no limits on the president, at least when he's acting against enemies outside of the United States, and it imposes only minimal limits uh, in any case when it comes to U.S. citizens. Now, according to the administration, War is an institution in which the reigning principle is executive discretion. Whatever the president chooses to do is lawful simply in virtue of the fact that he's chosen to do it. Now, what's most remarkable about this claim is how radically it diverges from the traditional American understanding of war. The founders, as we've heard, valorized the law of nations as a body of law that both empowered and bound the United States from the moment it achieved independence. For the founding generation, the use and bellow, the laws of war, in particular, were an enlightened body of law which traced its origins to antiquity and its modern development to the great writers on the law of nations. The framers recognized that the conduct of war was appropriately assigned to the executive branch, but that function, like all other functions assigned to the executive, was to be carried out in accordance with the law. The notion that the rules of civilized warfare, as they would have described the laws of war at that time, could be disregarded on executive authority alone would have struck them as highly objectionable. Now, this background helps to clarify how the Constitution divides authority over, the war, over war. The president, as an executive official, is given exclusive responsibility for commanding the armed forces. 
But at the same time, he always acts subject to a definite legal regime. The source of that law differs depending on the context. In those areas to which the laws of war apply, mostly in regard to engagements with enemies and neutrals, the president is bound to uphold the laws of war. In those areas to which the laws of war do not apply, matters such as the internal regulation of the military forces, the Constitution explicitly grants Congress the power to make the necessary rules. Finally, the Constitution contemplates that Congress will have authority to decide whether the United States should exercise the full rights recognized by the laws of war, or whether instead it should refrain from exercising those rights in some respects. It therefore gives Congress the right to impose restrictions which limit the president from exercising the full belligerent rights of the United States by restricting, to use a, an historical example, the capture of neutral enemy vessels which would otherwise be subject to confiscation as legitimate prize of war. Now, the president thus has the power, once the United States is engaged in war, to exercise the rights of the United States under the laws of war. As a general rule, his authority in that respect doesn't depend upon congressional authorization. Nevertheless, the president is constitutionally bound to observe the laws of war, and he's also bound to uphold any congressional statutes which limit his authority further. Now, there are exceptional cases in which the president may not exercise the rights recognized by the laws of war without first obtaining a congressional authorization, and even more exceptional cases when the Bill of Rights may limit both his and Congress's powers. Indeed, many of the great, great constitutional controversies in U.S. history, the celebrated Milligan case is the prime example, have focused on the scope of these exceptions. Now, the scheme which I'm describing, in fact, has been widely accepted for the greater part of American history. Indeed, the understanding the president is bound to observe the laws of war was universally accepted in the United States in the late 18th, the 19th, and at least through the first half of the 20th century. It was affirmed early on by both Madison and Hamilton and other founders. It quickly, found, quickly and repeatedly found its way into Supreme Court jurisprudence. It was also frequently reaffirmed by presidents and high executive branch officials, by members of Congress and in legislative reports, by leading commentators on constitutional, international, and military law, and in public debates. Indeed, every war in which the United States was engaged, beginning in the late 18th century and continuing through the 19th, provoked discussion of the issue, and in each instance, the consensus was the same. It's particularly noteworthy that it was the Civil War which generated the most extensive discussion of these issues. Lincoln, Secretary of State Seward, Attorney General Speed, military officials, countless members of Congress on both sides of the aisle, public commentators, authors of leading texts, all emphatically agreed. Disagreements focused on whether Lincoln's most consequential acts like the Emancipation Proclamation, were in fact authorized by the laws of war. Now, it's striking that the Civil War was, of course, a civil war, not a war between independent sovereigns. Yet no one ever questioned that the proper measure of the president's commander-in-chief authority over Congress's power to narrow the scope of the executive's authority over the conduct of war from the baseline provided by the laws of war. For the most part, Congress was content to leave the president to the laws of war. It simply had no reason to restrict the president further, which would have put it, the United States at a disadvantage in comparison to other states, or to expand his powers in ways that were uncivilized. Indeed, the, 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 most, uh, the most dangerous aspect of the claim that the president can disregard the laws of war is precisely this, that Congress has generally not placed limits on the president's conduct of war on the fully justified assumption that the president would be governed by the laws of war. Nevertheless, Congress did from time to time adopt restrictions which were generally accepted with little or no controversy, although they sometimes provoked more heated debate. But during the Cold War, presidents began to challenge this settled constitutional understanding, making new claims to exclusive powers and asserting the right to disregard the law of nations, claims which the current administration has pushed to the limit. Unfortunately, I, I don't have the time tonight to explore these developments. 
Suffice it to say that these positions have never been affirmed by the Supreme Court or been widely accepted in Congress or the legal academy. The recent decisions by the Supreme Court in the Hamdi and Razul cases, moreover, strongly suggest that the court continues to adhere to the traditional approach. Now, because I don't believe that history provides conclusive answers to constitutional questions, I should briefly explain why I think that the traditional approach continues to make sense from a normative perspective. And here I'm, in some respects, responding to Professor McGinnis's uh, remarks. What's at issue are questions of institutional competence and checks and balances. To be sure, there's agreement that the command of the military should be in the president's hands, but the command of the military and the power to determine the rules governing the conduct of war are different matters. While the concentration of these powers in one branch gives rise to classical concerns about abuse of power, there are also grounds to worry that giving the president free reign will lead to inefficacious decision making. Especially in the context of war, the executive has powerful incentives to favor short-term gains, even at the risk of long-term costs. The executive is under intense pressure to achieve quick, tangible victories. He'll be tempted to act expediently, even when doing so risks medium or long-term harms. The laws of war and the possibility that Congress might intervene are disciplining devices, discouraging the executive from making wrong-headed decisions. If the executive can disregard the laws of war at will, and if the Congress has no power to act, the president will be tempted to make consequential decisions in secret, avoiding the need publicly to publicly justify his actions. The predictable result will be short-term thinking and bad decisions. It's for these reasons that the executive is more, not less powerful, when his discretion is bounded by rules which prevent him from making mistakes to which he would otherwise be prone. Now, there are also grounds for thinking that the international laws of war are a normatively attractive body of rules. States tend to negotiate the laws of war in the aftermath of major conflicts, when the larger systemic consequences of short-term, narrowly self-interested tactics have become clear. For this reason, they're in a favorable position to deliberate about what the mutually advantageous and morally compelled legal rules should be. In contrast, a particular state's executive branch officials will consider these questions not in a period of calm reflection after a war, but under the pressure of grave uncertainties in an ongoing conflict. Those are not the kind of circumstances which we should expect to yield decisions to forego short-term advantages to avoid potential long-term costs. Now, I think that our experience in the past few years bears out these claims. Shortly after 9-11, and notwithstanding the laws of war and explicit congressional statutes, the president decided in secret and on the basis of classified legal memoranda to radically alter the traditional American policy on interrogations. He made the decision in view of a perceived imperative to prevent a second attack at all costs. It's possible that the use of these techniques produced intelligence information, which helped thwart planned attacks. Even if that were the case, the change in policy also imposed enormous and predictable long-term costs on the United States. Individuals responsible for heinous crimes can never be prosecuted in a civil court. Special facilities, so-called black sites, were created outside the jurisdiction of courts. Individuals were disappeared and held incommunicado indefinitely. Ongoing criminal prosecutions against terrorist suspects were compromised. Special military tribunals were established to deal with detainees who were not disappeared. And these tribunals needed to accept evidence uniformly viewed as inadmissible by civil courts in liberal democracies around the world. The United States was subjected to persistent international criticism. Its ability to promote human rights globally was undermined. Other states have found it difficult to cooperate fully with it in dealing with terrorist suspects. Its ability to promote liberal democratic values in the Middle East has been compromised. And acrimonious divisions within the country have been opened up in view of the profound moral concerns which such a policy raises for many. And my point isn't that the policy was wrong, although I certainly believe that it was, but that it was unconstitutional. Had the president recognized the obligation to go to Congress, he would have been forced to offer a public justification for his policy and to answer critics who would have raised these and other objections. 
Instead, it seems likely the president was moved by urgent short-term concerns and ignored or downplayed long-term consequences of this decision. Indeed, many of those long-term consequences have not yet been fully realized and will not be on this president's watch. The next president, for example, will have to decide what to do with al-Qaeda suspects who've been tortured, held incommunicado for many years in secret facilities, but who are no longer of any intelligence value. Hold them in this fashion for life, summarily execute them, give them secret military trials and then execute them, hand them over to another country to do the same. The choices are not appealing. Thank you. I, uh, I am very tempted to, uh, to take off after David and, and engage in a straighted discussion as to what is the indicia that, ladies and gentlemen, great members of the House and the Senate operating in a true Solomonic and Salonic fashion are better capable of dividing long-term interests and are not driven by short-term political considerations, at least comparatively better than the President. I would be, I'd be curious, perhaps, we can look at, at some of our congressional decisions in the foreign affairs field, the domestic sphere, and, and discern that that is the case. But I, I wonder, but I won't stick to, uh, to my prepared remarks and, and talk a little bit about what I think we're all more or less talking uh, about, which is the extent to which customary international law binds the political branches. Talk a little bit about the Constitution and talk a little bit about the courts. I know we, we kind of have a little cognitive dissonance here, but I do want to reemphasize the traditional international law, kind of international framers would have recognized, in addition to, of course, being a, a species of, of natural law, really was especially in the laws of war area, pretty darn deferential, shaped very much by raison d'etat, was not enforceable, ladies and gentlemen, for any legal procedures. You didn't have tribunals, uh, and uh, was primarily enforced by, by hard power, up to and including war. Uh, again, we can have a long debate about it, but the, the notion that you know, traditional international law with emphasis on you know, distinction and proportionality to be decided by combat commanders had something comparable to Protocol 1, which has elaborate Protocol 1 additional of 77 Geneva Conventions with elaborate discussions of, of how do you do the balancing and whatnot would have struck most framers and most contemporary military commanders as just plain silly. Now, yes, we do. I, I, I certainly agree with, with Judge Bonanis. There is something called use Kogan's. But traditional use Kogan's was, were provisions were quite brief and unexceptional, not to impugn their, their powerful force, but unexceptional, again, not being particularly constraining of executive. In fact, if we had international law today on the plate that the framers would have recognized as international law, I cannot conceive of any circumstances which the American president would want to violate it. Having said that, I, I think, at least at the risk of sounding provocative, the answer as to whether or not political branches of this country can violate or derogate from international law is very obvious. Of course they can. What is customary international law? Customary international law is the practice of states, and not just practice, but opinion of juries thrown in, a practice driven by sense of, of legal obligation, developed over time. How do you develop it? Through state practice. Does the United States not have the same right to develop customary international law as any other state? Of course it does. Who gets to develop customary international law? The political branches. And, Let's leave un until later uh, the interplay between Article One and Article Two, and I don't understand this. Sort of, I know time only travels in one in, in one dimension or one direction. I don't understand this notion that you can develop rules this way because, by definition, we all agree the customary international law is not the same now in the time of Grotius and Pufendorf. Well, somebody must have derogated from the old norms to bring the new ones in. Why is it an, a one-way process? There's nothing 
that, that suggests that in, in customary international law itself or any normative principle. But I recognize, unless you assume that everything that happens has to be progressive, and that, that is an okay dimension. So to me, the only real distinction between derogation and and uh, creating a new norm is, 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 a, is a temporal dimension. When you change or challenge an existing norm, you derogate from it, when you do it for a while, and other folks, other states join in, it becomes a norm. And by the way, international customary law is not homogeneous, it's granular, because you do have different norms that apply to different folks, either because some people are persistent objectors or because some folks decided to go backward, but it no longer works for them. In fact, not only derogating from customary international law is the essential prerogative of sovereignty, Derogation is how you make customary international law. Otherwise, you, would, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't have it. Now, how does this process work from constitutional perspective? Article 2, of course, vests presidents in the president, all the executive power of the United States, and that combined with the presidents, what I consider to be illustrative powers as commander in chief, uh, make of treaties and John Marshall's famous words out of it, he was not the chief justice, uh, was the sole organ of nations' external relations. Of course, President's power is not absolute and can be checked by Congress, but basically the President, by acting day to day by himself and every senior officials of the executive branch, creates the norms. Constitutional perspective, no different than what happens in the domestic sphere, just like one President or one Congress cannot bind future Presidents and Congresses from altering their policy. Um, the same thing happens in, in a customary sphere. In fact, as a matter of fact, the same is true with the treaties, which I would consider to be a stronger form of international law. The treaties can be violated, or technically the treaties can be broken. That, that, the treaties can be designed. You can withdraw from a treaty. And as a matter of fact, the president can do that entirely on his own, and we can, we can debate that. Now, let me just briefly tackle, the, to me, what is a quite remarkable proposition that, that certainly been advanced on September 11th, the president lacks power to shape international law and is bound by the law I sort of handed to him. What does it really mean? From a philosophical perspective, it means that the framers who were passionately committed to the idea of American independence, having fought a very quite a difficult revolutionary war, it's kind of a close-run thing, and having you know, separated after much agonizing, because it was not easy from the mother country, having developed a very complicated constitutional scheme of checks and balances, separation of power, all that other stuff, basically were willing to subject all of those intricate workings, the entire life project, to constant revision by other folks. And yes, we can have a play in that constant revision because Martin and David are correct. You can participate. You can make objective. But ladies and gentlemen, don't you remember that the whole premise of the American Revolution were not interested in direct representation? That was not enough. Do you really think it is enough to allow this life project that the framers wanted? to be changed but for a process in which we have only the most attenuated role. And by the way, the real question, ladies and gentlemen, is not whether or not we should engage in torture or cruel and humane and degrading punishment or engage in a war of aggression. The real question is who defines what those things mean? Okay, nobody has suggested, at least I'm not suggesting, we should engage in torture. And enabling other folks to define them as all important means basically means that the United States, having separated from the mother country, has become a ward of foreigners. And, I mean, to me, it, it would have been a, a remarkable proposition. Now, a couple of brief constitutional observations. Uh, to me, there's nothing in the Constitution that suggests, despite the reference in, 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 in Article 3, to which I get in a second, that the customary international law cabins in some insurmountable way the President of Congress. The whole reference, that the so famous define and punish clause in Article 1, Section 8, Clause 10, 
means that Congress can legislate in ways that modify pre-existing international norms. And telling them the wording of this clause was a subject of very instructive debate during the Constitutional Convention. On the discussion on August 1787 in Philadelphia, the draft on the table of that article would have granted Congress power to declare offenses of the law of nations. A number of international framers, including Randolph Wilson, Governor Morrison, to me at least I'm a big fan of James Madison, objected, and I'm quoting from the journal on a particular day, objected the word declare, noting, quote, that no foreign law should be a standard of evidence expressly adopted. And the darn language got changed to, to define, not declare. But there are many things, what happened with define and punish laws, there are many things in the, in the constitutional text where we, we guess at what the framers intended. But to me, that particular vignette from a constitutional convention suggests the framers clearly, to the majority of the framers, envision the possibility that Congress would derogate from the law of nations. Now, yes, there are all sorts of, 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 of other contrary opinions, and yes, we had some framers who were probably in the same mold as David and, and Martin as to automatic incorporation of international law. But hey, that view did not win. That view did not win. And the fact that it was teed up, actually, suggested to me that it lost. We don't have time to get into the case law, but to me, if you look at all the curly cases, there is indeed a lot of discussions with the charming Betsy Cannon and the antelope and, and all sorts of other cases, and Pagita Bana, all sorts of wonderful stuff. Why is it there? First of all, none of it stuff is used to cabin the political branches. This language is used to deal with a problem or virtue we have. Yes, we have a common law tradition. In fact, in, in Article 3, federal courts are given the exclusive jurisdiction, for example, to deal with maritime and admiralty cases. State court cannot touch it. How are they supposed to deal with it? If somebody seizes your ship and you come and you claim it was improperly seized, in this aspect, despite, and I agree, eerie, federal courts have to operate in a common law tradition. A common law tradition, like cases are developed, decided alike, ideally, and you don't want to change the law if you can avoid it. So that explains all the stuff from, from Pagita Abana and, and Charming Betsy. You try to look at what other common law courts have done. That's fine. But that is a far cry from arguing that those particular provisions cabin the actions of the political branches. Um, and again, this traditionally has been most prevalent in the maritime and, and, and uh, admiralty cases. Now, I'm not arguing that derogations or displacements of customary international law should be done lightly, but that's a policy, that's a diplomatic problem, that's not a legal problem. One other last thing yet. The president, what's unique about treaties is the president cannot displace international statutes. Question interpretation. We cannot say, I don't like the statute. Uh, yes, it's constitutional, but I'm not going to do it. If you think it's unconstitutional, you can, you can challenge it, whatever. But with treaties, ladies and gentlemen, the president can vitiate a treaty. And once the president vitiates the treaty as a species of international law, which he certainly can, the treaty would mean nothing anymore as a matter of domestic law, because the sole reason it has the domestic impact is because it has a, a corresponding international law obligation. So to me, in some sense, it would be even silly to think but here is the president who, on his own, can vitiate the strongest form of international law, cannot do the same with customary international law. Bottom line, I know it's kind of unduly liberating, perhaps, for our political branches, especially for those of them who are more short-sighted, presumably the president, presumably mostly Republican presidents, but I'm afraid that international law does not help in this area. Thank you. We have some time for some questions, but let me try to uh, begin the process of interaction by 
simply um, asking a fundamental question or two, particularly of, um, of Professor Flaherty, since he spoke first. And, and maybe, as you can see, um, I promised you that uh, customary international law had a soft, indeterminate character. And I'm not sure that um, uh, good as, uh, very good as the, each of these uh, uh, statements was that, that um, an observer, even a, a well-trained lawyer, even a lawyer with some knowledge of international law would have very much sense of um, what the answers are, much less what the questions are uh, with which we're presenting. Let me ask a very simple question, a minimalist question of Professor Flaherty. Uh, based on some remarks just made by Mr. Rifkin, would you agree that as a matter of domestic law, the Congress and President can, by formal action, deviate from the United States' international obligations? You don't have any doubt of that, do you? Uh, with, well, with regard to Congress, uh, I mean, Congress can, as a matter of domestic law, do that. Um, with the president, it's uh, uh, a little dicier because the president acting alone. Right. Well, one thing that's never been resolved is whether the president can terminate treaties, must terminate treaties, uh, with the advice and consent of the Senate, or not. I mean, that that's actually something that's never been adjudicated. One way to view it. I'm not sure I necessarily subscribe to this view, but it is a kind of middle middle view. Would be. Um, the president, uh, 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 unless he does affirmatively state that he is terminating the treaty. So to concede that point, the president can terminate it unilaterally, which I'm not sure is the right position, but just to concede that position, that's one thing. But what the president cannot do short of that is disobey a treaty because he is under an obligation under the Take Care Clause to uh, uh, follow the, uh, as a domestic matter, to make sure that the laws are faithfully executed and treaties are self-executed, uh, for the most part. Can so, I, can I just add one thing? This is ironic because we're all representatives in the national law. International law recognizes, ladies and gentlemen, the variety of grounds for withdrawal from different treaty commitments that are not technically violations, change circumstances, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, or, or, or any or any circumstances, and if the United States cannot do that as a as a sovereign in total, then the United States is not truly sovereign. If the United States can do that, recognizing the circumstances that allow those grounds to arise is such inherently discretionary act. But if a president cannot do it, then nobody right, can. Well, no, no, no. That's not my point. I mean, my point isn't that nope, that the political branches in the United States cannot terminate treaties under international law. The question is how, as a matter of domestic constitutional law, can that be done? There is one school of thought which is that which many of the found, many not all of the founding generation felt, which was that with regard to treaty termination, just as the Senate is involved in accession to treaties, so too the Senate should be involved in uh, termination of treaties. Um, that was not necessarily a consensus view, but uh, but conceding that point, my only point is that uh, unless the president, as a formal matter of international law, says that he is terminating our treaty obligations which he can do under international law, and I'm certainly not disputing. Unless and until he does that, it seems to me a strong argument can be made that he is under the obligation of the Take Care Clause to uh, make sure that the treaty provisions are adhered to as a matter of domestic law because uh, Article 6 says treaties are self-executing. Mr. Yeah. McGinnis, you have a view on this? 
Uh, well, I certainly think that uh, the. I'm sorry. Uh, I certainly think that the uh, pres that uh, uh, the president and uh, can terminate treaties. I think that's the best view of the Constitution. Uh, uh, the question we're really looking, though, as a customary international law, which I think is a somewhat different issue from treaties. Indeed, uh, that's my concern. I think much of what I, for instance, Professor Golov said about the Bush administration, I'm not sure is it may be correct, right? It may be correct that uh, the president does not have a lot of authority uh, to act outside of Congress, but that doesn't mean that, it, it, that, in fact, is probably my view, that the president executes what Congress wants, and then it's Congress that can hold the president uh, to account. But my question is, why should we have customary international law to be what holds into account rather than to be the actions of, of Congress? You don't have any doubt, then, that, uh, that uh, the political branches of government can deviate from rules of, of customary international law, at least Congress can deviate from any such rules, well, right? I, I, my, my point is even a little stronger than that. I'm rather unsure uh, about how we can, uh, how we actually can suggest that customary international law can bind them even when they, so long as they're acting. I don't think they necessarily need uh, to take tremendous affirmative acts. Now, in some cases, again, I think with respect to often war powers resolutions, Congress may intend the president to follow certain uh, concepts of customary international law and be relying on the various practices of law of uh, practices that have been in the past in which we have followed it and that may have some binding force on the president but that's Congress's action it's not customary international law by its own force binding the president I'm just trying to clarify what I think is at stake here uh, rather than uh, have a question of, of rather than being in favor of presidential authority or presidential executive discretion. In my view, what I have a trouble with is customary international law coming and binding uh, the political branches. And so a fortiori it follows the, the political branches uh, can deviate from it. Now, Professor Gallup, just to follow up on that for a moment, then we'll take some questions. Is it your view, that I understand it to be your view, that that decisions of the political branches of our government can be displaced, in effect, by the application of, of rules of customary international law? No. Yeah, Judge, I think, I think actually there's one point of agreement amongst all four of us, and that is that Congress has recognized authority to displace both treaties and customary international law. That, 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 and that principle is long established as early as the Charming Betsy case. Uh, Justice Marshall said a law of Congress ought to be construed to avoid violating the law of nations if possible, implying if it was not possible to so construe it, then it would override customary law. That same principle with respect to treaty was affirmed at an early point. So this is our base. We, we, so this is where we all agree. We have that as a baseline. That we, we, we differ on a number of questions. We might differ with respect to treaties on whether the president has the power to unilaterally terminate them or that some other procedure should be used. I would state a very a different view, which is it may be the president has some unilateral power to terminate treaties. We don't know from the Supreme Court because they refused to tell us when they had the chance. Um, he may have such powers, but there are different contexts in which he might exercise that power or not be permitted to exercise that power. For example, if the treaty has a provision in it that says it may be terminated on six months' notice, then it may be the president has the power to terminate it on six months' notice without any congressional or senatorial involvement. 
if the law of treaties, which is customary international law, says that it's justifiable for the president to terminate the treaty because the other party has breached the treaty, because there's been a fundamental change in circumstances, or for some other set of reasons, then it may again be within the president's power to unilaterally make that determination and terminate the treaty. The difficult question, I think, would be whether he has that power if he's acting in violation of international law in terminating the treaty. There, I don't think we have any good authority to suggest the president has any such power, um, uh, but we might have an argument about it. Um, so now, that's with respect to treaties, but with respect to customary international law, the claim has been made, often on the basis of dicta in the Paquette Havana, a famous case, that by controlling executive act, the president can disregard customary international law. I think there's extraordinarily strong grounds for thinking that's an incorrect interpretation of that dicta, and that in fact, for 50 years after that, dicta was, was issued. All commentators on the Constitution who took up the question uniformly agreed the president did not have that power. That was recognized in the relevant military manuals. Winthrop, who's gotten much play because of his role in the Kieran case and um, uh, the, the citation of his, of his great treatise on military law, but in all the great constitutional Willoughby on the Constitution, the commentators on constitutional law, foreign affairs, Quincy Wright, many, many, many commentators. Uh, all agreed. We have many Supreme Court decisions which assume it if, to, if, if they don't actually directly address it. And we now have the Hamdi case where, uh, and I want to make a point in response to something that, that Professor McGinnis said. In the Hamdi case, as I think implicitly uh, John was suggesting, the court interpreted the authorization to use military force and its reference to uh, uh, use of force that's necessary and proper for achieving for responding to the attacks on 9-11, um, interpreted that to mean that the president was bound to observe the laws of war. That is, they said the scope of his authority would be defined by the laws of war. He could, he could detain Hamdi because the laws of war permitted it, at least so long as the Afghan conflict continued. The implication being that if it, he was held longer than that, he wouldn't have authority to do that. Now, I think Professor McGinnis is suggesting that it was the force of the statute that brought on that interpretation by the Supreme Court. But it's almost ridiculous, I think, to think that had the president not gotten an authorization to use military force, had acted solely on his own authority, say, claiming that he was engaged in self-defense in response to the 9-11 text, that his powers would have been broader than under the use of force reservation. In fact, if anything, they would have been narrower. That the, and this corresponds with the long tradition going back to 1789 and before, and including to the British practice, that the commander-in-chief is bound to observe the laws of war. Uh, absolutely, yes. I, not to observe more time, uh, but I find it, uh, much as I enjoy sparring with it, I find it absolutely fantastic, the notion if you actually read Hamdi and you remember the context of this particular observation, this observation was meant to illustrate why it's necessary and proper in the context of hostilities to take people prisoner because of obligation to give order, as distinct from things like seizing steel mills. That that somehow is to be construed by as a remarkable statement that the president is bound by an indeterminate body of law. Uh, and, and, and if that is the way we construe Supreme Court cases, I, 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 I don't know what to say, because that was not the question before the court at all, as a matter of fact. But anyway. Do we have any questions from the, why don't you go to the microphone? Hi, my name is uh, Bill Erlbaum. Uh, Professor Flaherty, you, as part of your background, talked about, I believe, 
uh, your love of theory, so let me raise an issue of theory. Um, uh, the conservatives among you, if I can use that shorthand, we don't have a lot of time, uh, think that the, the aspect of our sovereignty is we can trump international law, both treaty law and international uh, and customary law. But if that's an, as, as the theoretical matter then, if that's an aspect of sovereignty, then any sovereign would have that power. Suppose there were, you've, you've paid lip service to the rules against genocide, against slavery, against racism, I guess against planetary destruction. Suppose some sovereign exercising its sovereign political powers were to establish a system of slavery, genocide, planetary destruction, etc. What constraining power would there be in a community, an empirical world society, because we do have an empirical world society operating like the society, regardless of our fictions about nation states and the peace at Westphalia, what constraining authority other than uh, uh, um, customary international law and treaty law would we have but the collective sense of the planet, the, the global village? And in that case, if it's constraining on any other nation state's exercise of its sovereign powers, then must it not follow that it must be constraining on President Bush? Um, the, I suppose I'd attack the question this way, that um, uh, there may be a distinction there uh, between use cogens and uh, customary international law that you're getting at. But, you know, essentially, uh, the, uh, my view is, um, look, if a nation state tries to create a system of slavery or violates any of those norms that I mentioned, which are both customary international law norms and use cogens norms, that it's the same, those two Venn diagrams overlap, um, they would violate that body of law. They would uh, uh, violate treaty obligations that almost all of the nations uh, of the world have um, uh, 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 signed and ratified. And then the question becomes, you know, how would that be enforced? Technically, the way it would be enforced would be through uh, Chapter 7 action under the United Nations Charter by the uh, Security Council on the uh, theory that uh, gross human rights violations constitute a threat to the peace of the world. Um, and uh, that would uh, be grounds for intervening uh, uh, with regard to any country that um, violates those norms. I'm not sure that gets to your... We have another question. This is a little more narrow. <clears throat> Last year, the Supreme Court in Sosa uh, applied rules of customary international law in the context of the Alien Tort Claims Act. But it left open the question of whether the uh, original jurisdiction statute would be uh, another way in which those rules might be applied. Did you hear from anybody on the panel on that subject? Can you clarify the, question? By the original jurisdiction statute? Yeah, the, uh, it's one of the footnotes in the Sosa case, the federal jurisdiction statute. The federal question jurisdiction statute? Yeah. What, I, I don't quite. The, the Supreme Court left that question open expressly in a footnote, whether, whether either as a cause of action or a rule of decision or in some other way, customary international law might be applied in the U.S. courts outside the context of the Alien Tort Claims Act. Uh, oh, outside of a context. Yeah. I, my, my personal view is that <laughs> the only context in which customary international law, well, I shouldn't say that, 
you need you need a jurisdictional hook. You have a need a jurisdictional statute, and obviously the Alien Tort Claims Act is gives you a jurisdictional hook, or you need a constitutionally cognizable textual reference, which you get in the case of admiralty and uh, and maritime law, and, and frankly, in, in very very little else. So um, one of the problems, of course, uh, of federal courts being courts of limited jurisdiction, you cannot get into a court. It doesn't particularly matter what the norms of decisions, what the, the rules of decision would be. I suppose. Uh, outside of admiralty and, and maritime cases and all the other matters, you can go to state courts that are not courts of limited jurisdiction, and you know if they and they are not, you know, well, they certainly create common law. I don't have a problem with common law courts applying traditional common law principles as long as they operate reasonably. But you typically do that in in, in private disputes. It is not at all the same cattle of fish. So just because you have two private parties. And a state court, for example, is looking at, you know, what the British Court of Chancery did, not only pre-founding, but now, or what a court in Zimbabwe may have done and whatnot. It's not the same thing as arguing that their body of law is relevant to restraining the political branches acting within the proper scope of their constitutional authority. But I, I, I don't see outside of the Alien Tort Claims Act what other, and there may be some other statute I've never heard about, but I mean, what, what other what will be the basis for, for a federal court gaining jurisdiction? Uh, well, if you're an ambassador and you are molested or something like that, there are other little nuggets of, of, of jurisdiction there. I mean, there's sort of two points, you know, with regard to that. Uh, one is this does get to the issue I alluded to very quickly in my remarks, which is about the, you know, constitutional basis for uh, uh, affording jurisdiction uh, for um, uh, customary international law claims. I mean, the, you know, there is, at least as an originalist matter, there is evidence that the primary expectation was for that the, the jurisdiction would be uh, constitutional jurisdiction, not statutory jurisdiction, would be afforded through diversity. Because, you know, piracy, ambassadorial assaults, things are, you know, by definition going to involve uh, uh, foreigners and have diversity. Things are less clear as to whether customary international law could be considered something as a rising under for the purposes of uh, constitutional rising under. Um, if the answer is yes, then, per, then that gets us over the first hurdle with regard to the uh, general federal question jurisdictional statute. Then you get to the second hurdle, which is congressional intent circa, what is 1875, I think. Um, the Supreme Court's holding in Sosa was that the, uh, a, 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 a statute that conferred jurisdiction with regard to customary international law did not have to state a cause of action because part of the common law powers generally understood in the late 18th century was the ability of the courts to do just that, to supply a cause of action. So then the question would become congressional intent on that point, circa 1875. And was there that same expectation of uh, judicial power to fashion a cause of action uh, in that regard? So, I mean, that, that would be the initial ways I'd be thinking about that. Yes, sir. Thank you. Um, I'd like to evoke the memory of Elihu Root, who's here on the wall, and uh, who I think was the greatest, or one of the greatest of our Secretaries of State, the greatest Republican Secretary of State, I'll say that, and he gave a speech to the Republican National Convention in 1908, in which he said that the Hague Convention, the Hague process, marked the greatest foreign policy accomplishment of the Republican Party to date, and the realization through a process of customary international law, the realization of Lincoln's vision of a law of humanitarian conflict. 
And in those deliberations, which, uh, which Root led with a delegation of lawyers from this association, um, they met with very strong opposition from one government in particular that embraced almost all the ideas that have been set out here against customary international law, including the idea of sovereignty, and that was Bismarck's Germany. Uh, and Root said that that view would bring bloodshed and misery upon mankind and Europe, and he turned out to be right. So I'd like to ask, how, particularly Professor Guinness, you know, how do you distinguish your view and your rejections? Does, does it matter to you that Bismarck had long been dead by the time uh, this remark was reported? That's, that's correct. Made. It's his successors who were advocating realpolitik in 1907. Well, I really think it's, uh, you're, you really have to have a little stronger sense of causation than that, that uh, Bismarck uh, uh, was the, the, that was the cause of uh, the Second World War, the First World War, and, and, and bloodshed. Uh, the question really, in my view, is one of political science here. The question is, what norms are going to be better? And I don't, uh, uh, that's, that's the question we have here. And uh, uh, I believe that uh, the issue here is, is, uh, is not uh, the executive versus Congress. Congress certainly uh, can tell the executive what to do and how to prosecute uh, wars uh, if it wants to. The question is, should we have uh, international law telling either the Congress or what the executive uh, what to do. And the difficulty with that, seems to me, is, uh, is um, that uh, uh, the executive is elected. Presumptively, he's going to make, uh, it seems to me, the right decisions. The problem with the law, the rules of 1908, is that they're rules from 1908. The world changes. We have weapons of mass destruction now. Professor McGinnis, isn't the short answer to this question that the Hague Conventions were, by definition, treaties. We're talking about customary international law. Well, he, I, I'm afraid I'm not aware of, 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 of he, he, uh, uh, the questioner invoked customary international law as well as the great, um, uh, so I'm, I'm the, the, the Hague Conventions gave rise to corresponding principles of the laws of war of customary international law, which have been recognized by the United States as the customary laws oh. of war since Root gave his address. And until the present time, and, and none of the principles do, does the does has the United States denied, perhaps until quite recently. This is so. So this, now it's true that they were treaties, but they were also customary. This is just there's a fundamental dis it, the, <laughs> fundamental disconnect between uh, the way I see reality and Professor uh, Goff's reality. From his remarks, you would think that we're operating in an environment where our enemies operating in strict accordance with sort of Marquis Queensbury style rules. And we are the ones running roughshod over things. Ladies and gentlemen, it is a gross, gross caricature. The reality is that the United States is basically conforming its conduct, what I believe to be, and certainly the administration believes to be, traditional use and bellow and use and bellow principle. And the bad guys we're fighting against are the head cutters, people who fight out of mosques and hospitals, people who comply zip nada with not a single provision of the customary rule of law in this area, who are flouting it, who are denying its intellectual validity, who engage in lawfare. That is the reality. And the dispute is not between should the United States renounce the rules or not. The dispute is who gets to interpret those rules. Professor Golov, a bunch of folks from some bar association, a bunch of folks at some international tribunal, or the responsible political actors operating in accordance with their constitutional responsibilities. This administration never 
claim that they're not bound by laws of war. Question is, what do those rules mean? Well, that, that's, that's just not right. I, that is, the administration has claimed on many occasions, including in the Supreme Court of the United States and in many legal memorandums that have issued, that the president is not bound to observe the law of nations, including the law of war. That is the official position of the administration. It's being urged right now in the Supreme Court. David, as you well know as a lawyer, there's a fundamental difference between an articulation legal proposition that the president can derogate from the norms of customary international law and the argument that we did so derogate. The administration has maintained, if you're referring to certain opinions, the president could do that. So did I today. But the administration never said that we did. Okay? The administration has never said, for example, that it tortures people. It's a question of what is torture. Yes, there was a memo which said that the president could do that, but it didn't do that. And there's a fundamental difference between the question of legal power and actual conduct. And I don't want anybody to misunderstand that. Am I, am I misrepresenting no, what the administration is? We're talking about the legal power. We're not, talking, we're not here to resolve the No, but the way you describe it seems to suggest the administration is trampling laws of war. But the, I, I, just to go back to this question, the real problem, of course, with Bismarck's Germany was it was not a democratic nation. That was the difficulty with Bismarck's uh, Germany. I suggest that we do have a democratic nation. I've also suggested that our democratic nation is particularly well situated to make uh, these decisions. And those are likely to be, to be better uh, than decisions that are made in, in, the, in the consensus of people in the 1930s, because the world dramatically changes. And, I, and that is the difficulty, I think, with there's a huge dead hand problem with following rules that may not be opposite to our own world. The president uh, uh, has been elected. He has a, this democratic force behind him. And because of our situation in the world of gaining uh, of goods, of uh, peace and prosperity, what that means to us, he's likely to make some pretty good decisions on that. And Congress can step in if he isn't. That's my answer to that. And the basic problem from which you described is the problem of the absence of democracy, which I see is replicated in customary international law today, particularly as it's interpreted by unelected people. Uh, John, so, let me say it's a delight to have, um, uh, have be reminded that you have the portrait here of Ali Hugh Root and that he's a distinguished former member, uh, president of, of the New York City Bar Association. And it's nice to be reminded of the Secretary of State who enunciated the principle that the United States had the right to exercise an international police power in the Western Hemisphere. Um, a great student of international law, Ali Hugh Root. Um, I regret to say that our time is up, and in the nature of things, our discussion has been far-ranging and perhaps amorphous, and uh, perhaps we've barely scratched the surface of our subject. Um, indeed, we found it difficult to define the questions that are before us. But in any event, all of these matters raise important questions of democratic governance with which our country will grapple for many years to come. As you will have observed, it is a subject raising the most fundamental questions of national sovereignty and the role of our courts in a democratic society. I thank you for joining us tonight, and we are adjourned.